Well, it's certainly good to be before you uh, one more time as we work together tonight to study together. Uh, if you would, turn your Bibles to Psalm 27. We'll be looking through that passage as Bryant mentioned. And uh, I just cannot thank you all enough for uh, having me in this capacity. Um, I'm grateful, most of all, for the opportunity to proclaim God's truth. But I'm also grateful for all those who have made this such a pleasurable trip and, and uh, so appreciate all those who have been a part of that. Thankful for the Adamis, uh, you know, putting, putting us up or putting up with us. I'm not sure which, which it was, but I'm so thankful to them, thankful for uh, their efforts to make us feel comfortable, and uh, thankful for the McDermott's taking us out and uh, just had a wonderful time with them as well. Thankful for the Maxwells, uh, spending good time with them yesterday as well. Uh, made some good connections. I knew that Scott knew my family, but I didn't know how well he knew my family. So it was really good to be around them yesterday. And I'm sure some of you are thinking it's no surprise that Scott knows so many people. So that's another thing. And we got to, got to spend a good time with uh, Bryant and Eva today. And uh, certainly earlier on uh, last week as well. But uh, just can't say enough how thankful I am for, for Brian. As much as he likes to act like I've been beneficial to him, it's been the other way around. Like there, There's no doubt about that. So uh, I'm just grateful for him. You have, have a really good man working with you. And uh, I uh, just want to encourage you to lift him up and uh, support him uh, in the work. And I'm not just talking about financially. Preachers need support in more ways than one. Uh, and uh, his lovely wife, Eva, encourage her and help her. I would encourage that as well. Because y'all have a really good uh, good work here, and I, I think there are a lot of good possibilities for the work here in Savannah. So we'll be, uh, we'll be praying for that going forward. Please pray for our efforts in Calhoun County, Alabama, at uh, Golden Springs, and uh, hopefully that, that will continue to grow as we move on. One thing I did want to mention... Uh, one of our new converts just lost his dad uh, recently. So uh, if you would please pray for that family in their loss and in their discouragement. I know that there are so many things here that, that need uh, prayers, uh, and, and I'll be praying for those, uh, uh, those things as well. But uh, if you would, just keep them in your prayers so they're not too discouraged by this event. And, I, you know, really that leads into what we're talking about tonight. I think just about anybody would conclude that the last two years have been difficult uh, for pretty much anybody. I know that some maybe have been able to, um, uh, you know, get through things in, in easy ways, and I recognize that and I appreciate that. But we also note that others have had, had it very difficult in, in more ways than one. I don't recall... If I, if I remember correctly, I believe Bryant told me that y'all did not lose anyone to COVID. No one at Golden Springs, uh, thankfully, was lost to COVID. Uh, but we, we have family members who, who uh, may have that have experienced that. And I certainly have friends that have experienced that. And uh, one of the things I think that, that becomes really important for us to remember in times like this is the courage of figures like David. Um, you know, we could go through and look at the passage of David just running out ready to meet Goliath. We could look at David's courage even in the face of uh, what's going on, the, the chaos of his life. 
But I think this psalm kind of encapsulates a lot of those things. But it's not just about saying, go out there and be brave. That's easy enough. Uh, It's one thing to say that. It's another thing to say, look at what the Lord has done for David. And, And I believe that as we read through this psalm, we'll come to realize that God can do the same for us too. That God can give us this heart to know that I can trust in Him. To know that He is the basis of my faith. He is the foundation of my heart. Now there are a couple of possibilities with the timing of this psalm. Some have speculated, the traditional speculation would be, this was before David's anointing as king, when King Saul is chasing him around everywhere. Others have said this is during Absalom's rebellion, and perhaps that is closer to the truth. uh, Ultimately, we can't know. But I do want to note something when we look at the Psalms. And I'm sure Bryant has noted this here. When you look at the heading of the psalm, I'm not talking about uh, the italicized words that I find above in my translation. My translation says, an exuberant declaration of faith. Which, okay, all right, that's fine, Thomas Nelson, no problem. But the, the, the uh, the italicized words under it, a psalm of David. In other psalms, you'll notice that that sometimes that heading is longer and maybe even dates this. I think it's important to note that we have these headings back to the Septuagint. So we're talking about 357 B.C., give or take. So it's important that we note that these headings are not just throwaway things. There is some credibility to them. So there's a lot to show that this indeed was a psalm written by David. Of course, David himself is a massive figure in the Bible. He was the king in Israel. And all the other kings that followed him were measured back to his standard. And ultimately what we find in this psalm is that he had a great courage in God. Let's read the psalm together. Psalm 27, a psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh, my enemies and foes, they stumbled and fell. Though an army may encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war may rise against me, in this I will be confident. One thing I have desired of the Lord, that will I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to behold the beauty of the Lord, and to inquire in his temple. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. Therefore, I will offer sacrifices of joy in his tabernacle. I will sing. Yes, I will sing praises to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice. Have mercy also upon me and answer me. When you said, Seek my face, my heart said to you, Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my help. Do not leave me nor forsake me, O God of my salvation. 
When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take care of me. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies. Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and such as breathe out violence. I would have lost heart unless I had believed that I would see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. Now as we talk about this, and you might notice with your handout, I haven't put the verses in order, because I think there is a sense where we can sort of, I guess you could call this a text topical, where we're looking at this from a standpoint of the elements of this psalm. And I think that the abiding message here has to do with courage in God. I mean, when you look at verses 1 and 2, and you, you, you feel the courage in David as he says it, there's a song uh, that we sing out of the supplemental. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? I love that song because it encourages me. It encourages me to know that David had such faith in God to know that he could say definitively, He is my light and He is my salvation. The term of light would speak toward comfort and awareness. In the uh, ancient world, light was necessary. Without light, you might be out in the wilderness somewhere and you wouldn't know that this panther or some beast is going to come up to you and pounce upon you. That may be the end of your life. And you would wait until the next day when daylight, when sunlight would make everything clear again. And so light was very, very important in the ancient world. The term salvation It's the saving grace from troubles. The issues of our lives, the problems of our lives, we know that we all need salvation. And in fact, in in the sense of the Lord is the strength of my life, that's a powerful statement because that term really means stronghold. One commentator said that that term means security against all violence. So David had the faith to be able to understand that God was his security from all violence and that there was no other strength that he could turn to to oppose that violence. The question goes on, whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? And maybe we should ask that of ourselves. Who or what will you fear in life? We certainly recognize it's okay to be afraid. We know that God doesn't punish us for being afraid of something. But we also know that action spurred on by fear is what will define us. Can fear pull us away from God? I think the Bible tells us absolutely, yes, that's the case. And I want to note something, though. Even though I'm noting about this fear, we need to remember that David is not diminishing the intensity of the threat. He doesn't mean that this isn't really even a threat or a problem, uh, because it, it's, it, it is legitimate. If this is the time of King Saul, then you know, surely he recognized that danger. If this is the time of Absalom, he's been run out of Jerusalem. 
He's not even able to rule his kingdom properly. He's had to run. But he knows that God is mightier than anything that opposes him. God is David's source. The Lord is David's foundation of encouragement, comfort, strength, focus, and determination. I see all that. Just personally, I see all that in the first two verses. But he goes on in that sense where he's trusting in God's protection. These threats in verse 2 and uh, in verse 3, they fail by their own power. And we look at verses 2, 3, and 5 to learn this. Note that in verse 2 he's saying, When the wicked came against me to eat up my flesh... That's kind of an intimidating thought. Uh, you know, the thought that they're going to consume me, literally. A similar statement in Psalm 14.4. Have all the workers of iniquity no knowledge who eat up my people as they eat bread and do not call on the Lord? David was able in that psalm to identify those who are wicked were actually causing harm to others. And it is interesting, too, that you have in the New Testament references that are similar to that. In 2 Timothy 2.18, when Paul is speaking of Hymenaeus and Philetus, he says, They've strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection has already passed, and they overthrow the faith of some. False teachers in the New Testament are, are sometimes figured as ravenous wolves, right? False prophets, as Jesus talked about. So, so this similarity is, is clearly there. Verse 3, we note these armies do not intimidate him. He says, my heart shall not fear. And again, I don't think this is just because David says this is not a legitimate threat. He's recognizing that the Lord is his provider of security and safety. And so he does not fear. My heart shall not fear. In uh, Psalm 56 and verse 9, Psalm 56 and verse 9, Similar statements by David there as well. Psalm 56 and verse 9. Listen to the confidence he has and who has that confidence. When I cry out to you, then my enemies will turn back. This I know because God is for me. In God I will praise his word. In the Lord I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? Again, this is not because David was just puffing his chest out and saying, nobody can take me. I'm so strong. He knew the strength was in the Lord. And he trusted in him to be able to hold him up and lift him up. He knew that God was for him. Why and how? Because he knew that he was for God. And, and there's that great relationship there. Back in Psalm 27, even if war comes against him, he's confident in the one thing that he seeks. Now I'm going to pause right here. We're going to go back to this in just a minute because I believe the one thing he's seeking is what he's confident in in verse 3. But I don't want to cover verse 4 right now. I want us to just think for a minute what is so important that would allow a person to be confident in the face of an army? And I may have the wrong answer to that. I would love your, your feedback on this. But I think it's important that we note something that, that is just so foundational in this psalm. It shows us so much about David's uh, priority and his, his, his viewpoint and his perspective. But I want to look first at verse 5 because this deals with the same issue. 
in the time of trouble, the time of trouble, uh, he will hide me in his pavilion. That time of trouble is a day of evil. It's a day of misery, a day of wickedness. And I'm, I'm not sure that this really falls under what we think of as, oh, I've had a bad day. It's just been a rough day at work. I really think this falls under the sense of a very horrible, traumatic thing has happened. I've lost a family member. I've lost uh, my spouse. I've lost my child. I've lost my job. You know, things that are big, life-changing events, I think, are, 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 is the thought here. How did Jesus react to his day of evil, his time of trouble? Of course, we go to Luke 22, and we, we see that he was withdrawn in the garden from them about a stone's throw. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. I want to pause in our reading there to note that I really do believe, and I, I, again, I may be wrong in this, I think if Jesus had ended the statement right there with take this cup away from me, I'm not sure he would have been the sinless Savior. I, I, I may be wrong about that. But I really think that this, this thought that take this away from me is a legitimate thought as long as it's followed up with this, what he says next. Because he says, not my will, nevertheless not my will, but yours be done. You see, we need to be praying for God to take our trauma away, take our troubles away, take our issues away. We need to be praying for that. But we also need to remember that no matter what happens, I will still be faithful to Him. No matter what occurs to me in my life, I will hold fast for Him because He will not abandon me. And even if I keep seeing those bad things happen in my life, I need to be able to recognize and see that God still intends for me to live and act in such a way that I accept His grace. And I know that there's mercy there, even though it may be in a shroud, in a fog right now. Maybe I can't even recognize that. A lady told me once, and uh, you know, I, I used to use this example maybe in a more negative way, but she lost her 16-year-old grandchild in a car accident. He died about a week later. And I was trying to comfort her and encourage her in this loss. And she said to me at one point, I just don't know that the Bible has the answers that I need. And as a young preacher, you kind of, oh, okay, you know, have a certain reaction about that. But I think over time you realize that, that at that moment, maybe that was the truth for her. Maybe she had to deal with that grief and get through that. I don't know. But I do know this, that eventually you have to get back on the ball. You've got to get back on track and recognize that this is, this is my salvation that I'm talking about here. This is my line I'm talking about here. And everything else that I may lose... I mean, really, at the end of the day, we have to recognize that, that loss is something that we deal with and we learn from and we move forward from that point. I like that word pavilion. At least that's how it's translated in the New King James. He shall hide me in his pavilion, the secret place of his tabernacle. The sense that God can take me to a place where the troubles of the world maybe can't find me. I wonder sometimes if this is similar to what Jesus says about you go into your closet, you close the door, 
and you spend that time with your father. I, I don't know if that's the same thing, but it's really interesting to think of. You know, that same word is used as suck-off. The, the, the core word of that is sulk, which means to cover or to veil. We find it in Genesis 33:17. Jacob journeyed to Succoth, built himself a house, and made booths for his livestock. Therefore, the name of the place is called Succoth. So house or dwelling place. Psalm 76. Uh, David uses the same term. Psalm 76 and verse 1. In Judah, God is known. His name is great in Israel. In Salem also is his tabernacle and his dwelling place in Zion. There he broke the arrows of the bow, the shield and sword of battle. So the dwelling place of God, his dwelling place, David believes that God can hide him from this time of trouble, in this time of trouble, away from the world, in this place, and at the same time, note in verse 5, he'll set him high on a rock. Which, of course, leads us to what we find uh, later on in verse 6, his head being lifted up. So, courage in God, that's his foundation. That's where he starts from. That's where he begins in his thought. And then we consider this aspect. I'm sorry I'm not keeping up with my PowerPoint there. But he, he goes into, in various verses, this aspect of closeness with God. And may I suggest that you really can't have one without the other? Uh, unless you're close with God, you can't have courage in Him. And that's why we need to be close to God before the time of trouble comes. We need to, to work on our lives so that we can, we can get closer and closer to God. So that when that day happens... And that horrible thing happens because, let's be real, we will face trials in our lives. It's unavoidable. It is a realistic thing. We don't need to think that we've uh, advanced so much that we can avoid all our troubles. We know that's not true. So let's be ready for them in being close to God. I mentioned earlier verse 4. What's the one thing that would be, he would be confident in that would allow him to uh, not fear an army encamping against him. Well, I believe the one thing here is in verse 4. The one thing that he's desired, the one thing that he seeks, he sought it, he's looking after it, that he may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of his life. Not just a temporary, hide me away until the trouble goes away. Not just a temporary, hide me away while the day of trouble, while people are raining in on me. I'm not looking for a temporary solution here. David's not looking for a temporary solution. He's looking for an eternal solution. Like those spoken of in Hebrews 11, they look for a country that wasn't here. Not a place not made with hands. And David's looking for that same thing. It is interesting, you note, in, in the time of Absalom, David has been forced from Jerusalem. He can't worship God in the tabernacle, but his focus and his heart is upon being close to his God. This thought is what allows him to face down an army without fear. And not just to dwell there, but to behold the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. 
So closeness with God has something to do with desiring to be with Him in His temple, beholding His beauty, and inquiring of Him. Do you think that prayers are associated with this? I think, it's, I think this is the core aspect of it, right? So in that closeness, we, we go on to verse 7 too. Verse 7 is actually an interesting point. Some people think that verse 7 is sort of a break where maybe the psalm is two psalms just sort of jammed together. And I guess I could see that, but it still makes sense as a whole. And it's important to note that. But this, I think it's important we note that David knows that an answer is only from God's mercy. In verse 7, Hear, O Lord, when I cry with my voice, have mercy also upon me and answer me. Now, we might stop for a second and say, well, is David really that close to the Lord if he thinks that that the Lord isn't going to answer? I don't think that's the case. I think he's expressing here that, that mercy is a part of getting that answer. God doesn't... Let, let, let's understand something. God doesn't owe us an answer at all. And he never has. I've talked to some who, who just seem like they want God to sit down at a table with them and explain things to them. And I'm just telling them, the Bible's what you have there, and it's necessary in that way, and it will do the job. <laughs> and uh, we need to understand that us just having this is such an amazing sense of grace and mercy. You know, Brian and I were talking earlier today, and he mentioned something that I, I think is spot on. We were talking about how, you know, th- this just seems to be one of the best times in history for Christians. Easy access to the scriptures. No massive persecution coming down upon us. We have a lot to be thankful for. We have so much to be grateful for to God that He's provided to us now in this time. And yes, we have issues. Yes, we have problems. But we need to remember that any kind of solution from God is still mercy. It's still grace. We don't deserve it. But we are, we are given those solutions by God and how great that is. And we can praise Him for that. Verse 8 is beautiful as well. When you said, seek my face, my heart said to you, your face, Lord, I will seek. There's an agreement here that God has, has uh, extended his hand. Seek me. Look for me. Find me. Have you ever met somebody who is just like an Apollos? Like, like they know a lot about Scripture already. And maybe when you, when you talk to them, and just help them to kind of fill in the blanks here and there. They become a Christian pretty quickly. I've known a couple of those. They're, they're kind of rare, but they're out there. But think about your neighbors. You know, maybe that's the case with some of them. There's a lot of, a lot of things to consider there, but I want to note that David responds to God's open invitation, and he did so. In Psalm 34, verse 4, he says, There I sought the Lord, and he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. Now, it's interesting there, the heading for Psalm 34 says, A psalm of David when he pretended madness before Abimelech, who drove him away, and he departed. Now, it's interesting there, too, because when you read about David's life, that's kind of a scary situation David's in. He's there with the Philistines. They could easily kill him if they find out that he's putting on this act. We have questions about that. I don't have time to get into that. But it's fascinating, in in that atmosphere... He's saying, I sought the Lord, he heard me, and delivered me from all my fears. 
I want to note too the history of David's descendants uh, from the point of David's life are going to be judged on whether they seek the Lord. I mentioned that all the kings after him are judged on his basis. And just, this is not exhaustive, but there are just a few that we might, might want to remember in the context of this psalm. Uh, remember, first of all, the failure of Rehoboam, David's uh, grandson. In Second Chronicles 12:14, we're told he did evil because he did not prepare his heart to seek the Lord. Sometimes we learn more from someone who is doing wickedness, uh, and, and we see where we don't want to go, and we avoid that. I think Rehoboam is part of that. He rejected wisdom and split the kingdom of Israel over. And certainly we recognize that in that sense, he wasn't a good example to be looked at in a positive light. But in the, on the other hand, you have Asa, who Asa stopped most of the idol worship in his day, took down the idols and, and the idolatry. Uh, of course, a lot of the kings had that, uh, the good kings did that, some were more successful than others. I think Josiah and possibly Hezekiah were maybe the most successful. But Asa, in Second Chronicles 14, verse 7, he's speaking to Judah. He says, Let us build these cities and make walls around them, and towers, gates, and bars, while the land is yet before us, because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, and he has given us rest on every side. So they built and prospered. You see, in Asa's day, he trusted in the Lord, for a time, of course, we can talk about our criticisms with these kings later. But for now, in terms of what we're talking about with Psalm 27, we recognize because Asa trusted in the Lord, the Lord prospered him and he was able to build up his defenses and to build up the kingdom. In Second uh, Chronicles 22 and verse 9, this is fascinating to me, by the way, because this is sort of uh, an, an out-of-the-way compliment for Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat of course was a good king in the days when Jehu is essentially following the Lord's command by taking out Ahab's house and all of the Baal and Astaroth worship it says in Second uh, Chronicles 22 and verse 9 that he searched for Ahaziah and they caught him he was hiding in Samaria and brought him to Jehu when they had killed him they buried him because they said he is the son of Jehoshaphat who sought the Lord with all his heart so the house of Ahaziah had no one to assume power of the kingdom. That's, it's fascinating to me that he, he has that grace for Ahaziah, not for the good things that he did, but for how good his father was. And uh, again, I'm not arguing that Jehu personally appreciated that, but in his own way, he was following what the Lord told him to do. It's sort of an interesting point in the history. Later on, of course, Ahaziah... It's said of him in Second Chronicles 26.5, He sought God in the days of Zechariah, who had understanding in the visions of God. And as long as he sought the Lord, God made him prosper. Of course, Isaiah was later, his heart was lifted up in pride. But before that, he worked to remove idolatry in Judah. Again, I mentioned Hezekiah and Josiah. There are so many figures we could go to here. I'm simply establishing the fact that David seeking the Lord's face had reverberations throughout the kingdom. And, and I'm not sure that the other kings would have done so if David had not done it. David set the standard, and the others 
were judged on that. Interestingly as well, Asaph seems to agree in Psalm 77 and verse 2, In the day of my trouble I sought the Lord. My hand was stretched out in the night without ceasing. My soul refused to be comforted. Now that's interesting too, because don't you want comfort in the middle of trouble? Don't you want to have some sort of respite from worrying about these things? Perhaps what Asaph is talking about here is that he was persistent in seeking this from God. He wanted to seek the Lord and no one was going to stop him. No one was going to tell him, listen, you're a good enough person. You're not stealing from anybody. You're not hurting anybody. You're just having a good time. I had friends in college that told me that when I would uh, uh, get discouraged with my parents trying to actually help me live right. I had friends that were saying, hey, you're not stealing from anybody. And, and I was seeking that comfort without really seeking the Lord. In verse 9, the pleading for the Lord to be near. You hear this desperation in this verse. Don't hide your face from me. Again, we, we think, why would the Lord hide his face from David? But I don't think that's really the issue here. I think David is simply pouring himself out here. And sometimes in our prayers, we need to be pouring ourselves out and devoting ourselves entirely to it. He's pressing for God to be near him. And I want to note something here too. Do not leave me nor forsake me. We might criticize that. We might say, well, again... Why would God leave or forsake you? He's promised that he'll never leave us or forsake us. Don't we know that? Doesn't David know his scriptures? Doesn't, know, doesn't David know God? What's this about closeness with God? Well, I think it's important that we think about these promises. Moses promised to the people in Deuteronomy 31.6, The Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you nor forsake you. We remember the words of Solomon. David's son. He says in verse Kings 8 and verse 57, May the Lord our God be with us as he was with our fathers. May he not leave us nor forsake us, that we may incline our hearts to himself to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments which he commanded our fathers. I think the words of Solomon give us a little bit more there because we're, why are we praying that? he may not leave us or forsake us well so that he may incline our hearts to himself and of course we know the eternal promise in Hebrews 13 let your conduct be without covetousness verse 5 be content with such things as you have for he himself has said I will never leave you nor forsake you so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper I will not fear what command do to me let me suggest that if we ask for something that we know God wants to do, if we ask for something we know God will not do, then we know what the answer is, don't we? The answer is always yes. And we can be confident in that. So when we're praying for God in this time of trouble, and we're hoping, we're, we're pushing through it, and we're saying, don't leave me in this, don't, don't let me feel alone, don't let me feel discouraged, we need to be persistent in that. And I want to say this too. This is not necessarily an outline, but that closeness with God is not just about emotion. 
It's not about how I feel when that prayer is done. Maybe I pray that prayer and I don't feel any better at all. That just tells me that I need to keep going and keep praying and trust in Him. What else are we going to do? I mean, really, what else are we going to do? Because the Lord has given us so much. Just the, the gift of being able to pour our hearts out to Him. What if He had said, don't pray to me? We should be grateful for that. But God wants to help us. God wants to be there for us. And He wants to give us victory. In verse 6, He says, Now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. How about that? The Lord not only has, has uh, given you victory, He's put you up above all these enemies, th this army that encamps around Him. And He says, I will offer sacrifices therefore. We are exalted in many ways above our foes, even as Christians. In Philippians 2 and verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, and this is the turning point, of course, in this reading. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name. That the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Of those in heaven, of those in earth, and those under the earth. And that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You see, the death of Jesus was not a defeat it was the great, greatest victory that has ever been made in existence. And the wonderful thing about this, you think about what Gamaliel said about the movements that had come up and died in recent years in the book of Acts. And Gamaliel said, leave these people alone. If they're not of God, they'll come to nothing. And he said, if it is of God... We shouldn't fight against it, lest we be found to fight against the Lord. Who won out? Is the Sanhedrin still a thing in Jerusalem today? Are the Jews still practicing by the Old Testament laws? No, they're not. And that's a testament to show us that this victory is real. And that we can trust in our Lord. Because He has already defeated all of our enemies. The terror and threat here is that the war is over, but the battles are still happening over our souls. We believe the adversary is trying to take each one of us in his own way. Brethren, we know, brothers and sisters, we know that the Lord wants to protect us from the wedges that Satan will continually want to drive into the local church. And in doing that, we need to recognize too that we should be rejoicing in the defeat of this wickedness. That's what we're doing when we sing together. That's what we're doing when we're teaching each other and encouraging each other. In Ephesians 5, in verse 19, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody in your heart to the Lord, 
giving thanks always for all things to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another in the fear of God. In mentioning the past two years, I just want to note too that I'm not trying to make anybody feel bad about what your reaction was to what's happened. If you were scared of what happened, if you were concerned, if you made priority to, to make sure to, to, to prepare for that, if you're still concerned about it, I don't blame you. That's, the, that's your choice and that's, that's okay. Because at the end of the day, anything can stand in the way. Anything can get in the way of us and God. And so we just need to be very wary, be very careful. In verse 10, uh, this statement is how far David takes this, which is kind of amazing. Obviously, this isn't a literal statement. There's no evidence that David's parents ever abandoned him. But David seems to be saying, even if my father and my mother forsake me, the Lord's going to be there for me. I can't think of a worse thing to happen. Speaking back to the days when I was living in rebellion, one of my greatest fears was to be cast off by my family. And, you know, it took adulthood to realize that that wasn't going to happen, that they would try to encourage me and to help me. And that's the thing that most people maybe don't understand about discipline. Discipline in the church is not about casting off and excommunicating. In fact, with discipline, you may increase the amount of communication you're trying to make to this person. It's, it's motivated by love. It's motivated for a care for their soul. Yes, there are some places you're going to draw some boundaries. You're going to say, hey, it can't be like it was. And we need to be doing that. But we do it all in love. We do it all with care. And we do it in the right way. He has a desire to be taught by God. In verse 11, teach me your way. Lead me to a smooth path. That smooth level ground is what we want. Isaiah 40 and verse 4, he said, Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low. The crooked places shall be made straight, and the rough places smooth. Can I suggest this is not about our material existence, but this is about our spiritual opportunity? Lead me in a smooth path. This is not David say, saying, make my life easy. He's not saying, put my life into a comfort zone where I never have to have troubles. That time is not now. That time is going to be in our rest in heaven, our Sabbath rest in heaven. But in the meantime, I think there is a hope here that this is a smooth path in the sense that I'm not troubled by the little things in life that may pull me away. And even in the big, terrifying times, I still know that God is there. And I still know that he will lead me through these trying times. It's smooth not because it's easy. It's smooth because I have a direct source and path to my Lord. And I can trust in that. Lead me in a smooth path because of my enemies, on account of, in spite of the enemies before him. If we trust in the Lord and seek him, we recognize there's no danger ultimately from anyone or anything. We need to remember this when the world tries to scare us into compliance with sin. Verse 12, of course, this desire to be saved by God. 
Do not deliver me to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, such as breathe out violence. Again, I would say that that's a legitimate cry to God. Don't, you know, when we're attacked in our lives, we should be seeking justice. When I talk about troubled times and, and asking God for deliverance for those troubled times, I think we can still call to God and say, hold these wicked ones accountable. Hold those, I mean, just like Hezekiah with Sennacherib. He set Sennacherib's words before God and said, look at this. You know, and, and God answered Hezekiah's prayer. And he can answer our prayer as well. Not only victory in God, but life in God. You know, again, I'm moving quickly through here. Waiting on the Lord. Okay, and I'm seeing that, okay, I, I don't have that right on the PowerPoint. My apologies. It's right on the, on the handout. Anyway, life in God. Verse 13 is a really good memory verse for me to keep in mind. And I try to sort of remind myself of that. Because we can start to think that we're just never going to see good things in our life. Someone says, well, I go to a small struggling congregation. I'm not a member of one of these huge churches that might be in other places and maybe there's a loss felt in that way but I think we need to turn that around because it's important to note that this was something that David saw in his life or at least knew that he would see but it's not just something that he hoped for Uh, ESV has an interesting rendering of this I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living that's a very faithful statement that term of wait on the Lord, kiva. Every reference that I found with that Hebrew word, and again, I, I may have missed something, so let me know if that's the case. Every reference I found is where the author is expecting something positive from the Lord. Waiting on the Lord is not just gritting your teeth and bearing through it. Sometimes that may be part of it. But you also know in your heart that the Lord will bring about good. That good things will come, even though this day is dark and trouble, uh, troubled and, and full of turmoil. David wants his audience to be strong, to be patient, to not give up, and not to lose heart. We might think about David's charge to Solomon. Remember, he, he wanted him to keep the charge of the Lord your God, to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his judgments, and his testimonies, that you may prosper in all you do and wherever you turn, The reality of this is, of course, that Paul the Apostle says much the same thing to us in 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Watch, stand fast in the faith, be brave, be strong, let all that you do be done with love. I want to quickly make some applications about Jesus. And then I'll leave you with the lesson. Jesus, of course, is our light, our salvation, and our strength. Jesus sought the one thing of dwelling in his father's temple. Even in the midst of working in Capernaum, he made the time in the morning, Mark 1.35, having risen a long while before daylight, he went out and departed to a solitary place, and there he prayed. Does that describe our prayer life? Are we intentionally finding time to be alone with God? God expects us to ask him for what we want and what we need. And of course, we're called to seek the Lord. And Jesus knew the faithfulness of his Father.
He knew that his mother and his brothers, even though they were outside, they were still his blood, his family. But his true family was those who were to keep, excuse me, whoever would do the will of the Father in heaven. That was his true family. And he knew that. Jesus, it's important that we note too, that he surrendered to darkness so that we can be saved through him. His time of trouble, his day of evil, was possibly one of the worst days ever. (laughs) But at the same time, it was the greatest victory, as we've already covered. Well, the passages are left with you. Uh, I hope that it's been useful. I'm thankful for your good attention all through these services. And I'm certainly thankful for uh, your efforts here as a local congregation. Think about your life right now. Think about... Uh, think about what you're scared of, perhaps. And, and maybe you need to think about, can I trust in the Lord to help me face that fear? To know that that's not going to defeat me. To know that my Lord is there for me, just like He was there for David and all of His faithful servants. Tonight, if you may, need to make a change and we can help you with that, please respond to the Gospel as we stand and sing.